Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 76 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I am also host of the Virtual Couch podcast, and then a couple of others, Murder on the Couch and Waking Up to Narcissism Premium Question and Answer, and uh, also creator of The Path Back, which is an online pornography recovery program that I, I need to talk more about because it's it's just one of the, the most amazing things that I've been involved in because there's a, there's an online course, which I love. I feel very confident about the tools, but then there's a weekly group meeting that is is fantastic. And to sound like a broken record, the men's group is very, very close. And as a reminder, this is for men who are waking up to their own emotional immaturity or narcissistic traits and tendencies, or men who have found themselves in relationships that they feel are perhaps more emotionally immature or narcissistic. And that could be a spouse. It could be a parent. It could be an adult child. It could be a boss. Uh, an organization, a religious institution, you name it. I want to really start uh, putting together this men's group and then some some calls, some group calls around that as well. So there's just a couple of things going on behind the scenes to be able to to facilitate that. If you are still interested in that, reach out at contact at tonyoverbay.com or info at tonyoverbay.com. And then the women's group has been flourishing. It, it just is an incredible entity that is uh, so supportive and so amazing and wonderful. So if you are interested in that, please reach out as well. Today, this is, I already did the interview, so I can tell you this is one of my favorite interviews. I felt like the the interviewee was so just, it was so easy to talk with her. Her name is Jody Carlton, and she is a neurodiversity expert. And I went in just completely open and vulnerable and let her know that I do not know what I do not know to even ask the right questions in the world of, of neurodivergent people and neurotypical people and how that shows up in relationships and why we're talking about this primarily here on Waking Up to Narcissism. There are a lot of similarities in how narcissism manifests itself in a relationship and how autism, formerly known even as Asperger's or high-functioning autism, shows up in a relationship because there's a lot of similar characteristics in the world of uh, emotional immaturity, but there are also some key differences and, and Jody is an expert in that field. And just reading a tiny bit about her background, the part I knew that that was what she was bringing into the interview. I'd had a friend of mine ask um, me to interview her a year or more ago, and it was fun at the beginning of this interview. You'll hear that uh, it turns out that same friend had reached out to Jody and said that she should get a hold of me. So I'm really grateful that we did. But she has over 20 years of experience as a therapist. She's an educator. She's a coach. Um, but she actually is a survivor of a narcissistic abuse, uh, abusive relationship where she said that she had to do a lot of work to recover from her own codependency that had resulted from that abuse. So we talk a little bit about that in this interview, but I think we're going to need to bring her on again to talk more about her story because we, we got really deep into the the differences between narcissism and autism, the similarities. And we talked about the entire neurodivergent spectrum and how uh, even things like ADHD could fit on there and how people are also starting to want to talk about putting personality disorders on that same spectrum. And that can, that, that's a lot. So we talk about that, but a little bit more about her background. She's a, a leading expert in neurodiversity and uh, she's helped the uh, teenagers, parents, adults, couples to understand brain differences in everything from language, um, emotions, sensory processing and behavior. Uh, she has a, her own podcast, her Neurodiverse Relationship Podcast, which has couples, partners, professionals, and I will put links to that in the show notes. And she also has a um, she has a, a couples assessment that she talks about, and I just I, I feel like she has just a lot of tools. So I'll link to all of those in the show notes. But um, let me just get right to that interview. So without any any further ado, let's get to the interview with Jody Carlton, Neurodiverse Relationship Expert. You. you know, when you work with technology, you gotta roll with the punches sometimes. It was really funny. Yeah, I was just saying all kinds of funny things. I thought, oh, is this the modern day example of Jody says, because we were trying to record on a different platform, a very fancy studio that was glitchy. And then we came over to good old Zoom and I'm like, what if Jody just disappeared? And she's like, you know what? I don't like the vibe of this guy. <laughs> just like, yeah, I'm I just out. left. And I'm just sitting here waiting. Yeah. 
So it's good, to, it's good to good to talk to you, and thank you for joining me on. So we're gonna we're gonna say initially I'm waking up the narcissism, but I'm I'm sure I'm gonna run this over on the virtual couch as well because I yeah, uh, I, I say so often that we don't know what we don't know, and I don't know a lot about what you are an expert in, and I have wanted to know more about some neurodiverse couples and autism versus narcissism and all these things, but I know that I've just proverbially kicked the can down the road and thought to myself, well, I'll figure it out later. And so I guess later is now. So I, I yeah. am excited. Yeah. I'm so glad that you reached out to me. You were on my radar a year or two ago, a colleague or not a colleague, but a, a friend of mine actually had mentioned you to me. And I'm just so glad you reached out because it's such an important conversation to have because there is so much confusion about, yeah. around narcissism and neurodiversity, and there's a lot of overlap, and it can look really similar. And I think that it's so important. It's just we need to start all of us. You know, as far as kicking yeah. the can down the road, it was I kicked that can for a while myself too, but I had to stop. It was one of those things that my clients needed me yeah. to really start getting into the weeds with it more and more. And so I just had to. So no, thank I you so much it. for oh, having me you. on. Okay. So it's funny that you say this because there's a, I don't know if it's the same person then, but I immediately sent a text yesterday to somebody then said, Hey, I have this expert coming on. And they said, yeah, I recommended her to you a year ago. I think so, that, yeah, it's probably yeah. her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I do. I love it. Shannon can say she told me so. That is. Yes, right, that's right. right? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I'm so glad then this is, but then in reading your background, I didn't realize that you reading about it, it says that you're also a survivor of narcissistic abuse and then spent years recovering from codependency. I can't even imagine what that was like as somebody that were you working in the field at that time? Oh gosh, it's been such a journey. So why don't you just yeah, take us on so, your train of thought? I really do want to just sit back. There's a part of me that wants to joke this being on video. I had a client bring me popcorn yesterday. So I almost <laughs> feel like, okay, I just need to you just sit, sit back, back and, and you just tell me the story, the right? Yeah. <laughs> But no, so, tell you know, yeah, wherever you want to go. Let's let's hear. Narcissism first got on my radar with a book that I read in my 20s. That's the first time I I wasn't a therapist yet. Okay. And I had I'd finished a, a degree in psychology. So, you know, it was probably in a chapter in an yeah. abnormal class or something. But I really first learned about it in my 20s and realized that my dad was a narcissist. Okay. And I mean, I'd always known, well, not always, but I was really coming into realizing how dysfunctional that relationship was. And was having various cycles of having to put boundaries in place and trying again and trying. So that's when I first really understood what a nar narcissistic personality was. And I started my healing from that relationship in my 20s. What I didn't know is that I was in a marriage. I'd just gotten married. And I didn't know that I'd married a man who was neurodivergent. And at the time, I mean, this was in 1997, 98. Mm. You know, autism at that point was still Rain Man for most of us. Yes, so yeah. It's how we first heard about autism. And so we just didn't understand this concept. And so our, my 19-year marriage was just very confusing and hurtful and painful. And it eventually ended. It, but when it ended, I had I had a wonderful therapist who I still call her up occasionally and say, you know, I need a top up. Yeah. But she was the first one that really helped identify narcissism in my marriage as well. Okay. And so that was the first, and I remember being so surprised. And I think I, I was looking at your playlist on YouTube yeah. and I, I saw one of your thumbnails, you know, when people question, am I the narcissist? Yes. And that has had, you know, that just this week I had a client ask that. Yeah. And of course I asked her, I remember asking her at one point, I think maybe I'm yeah. narcissistic or borderline. And, and she's just, I remember her saying, Jody. The fact that you're even asking that that's question yeah. rules you out. <laughs> it does. I, that's my number one answer. Yeah. It's like, bless your heart. If you're trying to that hard to figure out the relationship that you're willing to then say, I think it's me. Yeah. yeah. So when I left my marriage, it was more, she was helping me to recognize that I was in, in I was so codependent. You know, I was so trained up in codependency yeah. from having the narc dad and I had no idea, even though I was a, a therapist at that point. I still had no idea. It just, it's not something that's really taught in, no, in counseling not. programs. And I went to a really top rated counseling program. But so I, I started healing from the narcissistic traits. It was more covert type okay. narcissism. And even, you know, even in the last five, 10 years, we've really started differentiating yes. between the different types. My dad was very malignant over, over. narcissism. 
So I didn't recognize I I was used to that being narcissism. And I didn't re- so I didn't recognize the covert traits until my therapist helped me through that. And then it was a, a little bit later down the road. So I had an autistic daughter. So okay. I, I knew about autism. And that's how I ended up specializing. She's level one. She's in college right now. But boy, was that that's been a journey too. So I had, okay, this is my definition of autism. This is my definition of narcissism. And that, and I'm living this relationship with her, this relationship with him. And it wasn't until after my divorce that I really started seeing, oh, okay, he also is neurodivergent and has these narcissistic traits. Well, and and what's that? Yeah. And can you define just for people when you say neurodivergent, just, and I want to jokingly that? say, treat me as if I know nothing, because in this area, I worry that I don't know much. So yeah, yeah. yeah. So neurodivergence, we've really come to understand is when the brain is really hardwired differently. And we know now that some of the latest research in just in the last two or three years is telling us that 80% of neurodivergent traits are genetic. Okay. So we absolutely know. So this is basically some of the diagnoses that are falling under this umbrella are ADHD, autism, Mm. learning disabilities, what we used to call Asperger's, which is a level one type of autism here in the U S anyway, other countries still use Asperger's as a diagnosis. Hey, why did we take that out? By the way, I'm curious. I've always, it was 2013. Okay. And why did we change that? Why why took it out? The American psychiatric Association. it had to do with insurance. (laughs) It was insurance. So basically Insurance was covering treatment, counseling, the you know services for autism, uh-huh. even occupational therapy, speech therapy. But Asperger's was getting ruled uh-huh. out because a lot of children, most adults weren't being diagnosed. And even now, adults are not being diagnosed. But children who got diagnosed with Asperger's, a lot of times, their difficulties were more in social type things and there weren't academic problems as much. And when they went into treatment, they were they were just getting denied that the insurance companies couldn't figure out, you know, what's our treatment goal? How do we do this? Yeah. So they were getting denied. And the APA, American Psychiatric Association here went and revised the DSM so that they could start requiring a lot of states require insurance companies to cover autism. Autism. Wow. So they rolled it into level one. Now that came with it a lot of controversy yes. because so many people had been diagnosed with Asperger's already. Yeah. That was, a, it was their identity. My daughter was one. She was diagnosed when she was five. And so she still struggles. You know, she'll, she uses autism now as her framework, the label that she uses for herself, but she still calls herself an Aspie. Yeah. Uh, and well, so there were a lot of people that were, that struggled with that. Well, I appreciate, I'm so grateful that you could just answer it with that clarity because I do feel like as a clinician, when that was taken away, I feel like I just started to really understand Asperger's and I had the concept of high functioning Asperger clients that were, they were fine taking ownership of that. And then, you know, how do I learn how to interact in the workplace? But then I felt like once I remember the first person that came in and said, I don't want to be autistic. I'm fine being having Asperger's and, and it got into the whole concept around labeling and and then as a card-carrying ADHD, I now see, look at me, I have to say ADHD person, but I have ADD, but we got rid of that, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and like you said, so many people, especially I would say over the age of 50, mm-hmm. really struggle with the term autism. It just doesn't resonate. And even some folks in the 40s, the millennial generation, still see that differentiation between Asperger's and autism. And there's a lot of... Oh, there's just a a lot in the autistic community about whether it's a good thing, it's a bad thing. Asperger's himself, Hans Asperger's, was identified as being a Nazi. And so now that that brings with it a lot of a lot of negativity. So a lot of people are really up in arms about using that term at all. And I generally go with what my client, I mirror my clients. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I have to tell you, I, I feel very comfortable already talking with you. I have to tell you the It's funny because the reason I am also very excited of of how you explained that was, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of confabulation, confabulated memory. It's a term that's big in the narcissistic world, but basically it's that we create a new narrative to then fit the way that we see the world. So in the world of narcissism, it can't be that I was a bad person. So I've confabulated this narrative that it was you. And not only when you really look at confabulation, it is it happens in real time because the person has been gaslighting as a childhood defense mechanism their entire life. And so when you really dig into it, since that person, that is the way that their brain works, they believe their confabulation, which is why they can 
gaslight so well. So what's kind of funny about that is I had assumed that we got rid of the term Asperger's because that it was not a politically correct term anymore. And then I I was being interviewed on a podcast a few weeks ago, and I found myself going into that narrative. And I realized, oh, I am absolutely making this up, but I actually believe it because it kind of makes sense to me. You know, it's funny when you learn how memory works, you know? it's So confabulation, I hadn't heard that specific term, but yes, that whole, I believe my narrative is so, and and that actually applies so much to to the neurodivergent world too. Okay. Um, And I actually saw something on, I was, like I said, I started scrolling through your playlist and I'm like, this is good. This is good. (laughs) I I saw something you mentioned about implicit memory too. Yes. And so when you have the combination of implicit memory, which is those accumulation of experiences. Yeah. It's funny, I just recorded a video this morning on confirmation bias, which okay. is what you just <laughs> what you just yeah. described, yeah. where we we believe we see and, and perceive wow. what we expect to perceive. And I think what you just said about that confabulated narrative and why gaslighting is so powerful, it's because it's not it's not actually a lie. No, to them, it's not. Jody, that's, I gave an example. It's funny now. I feel like we're, I'm an old person saying, you know, on this TikTok thing, but I've got somebody putting some of the videos on TikTok. And I did one that I I took a screenshot and I have a client that will show up a little bit late and I will make a joke. He'll text me and say, I'm running five minutes late. And if he comes three minutes late, then I say he's early late. And if he comes six minutes late, (laughs) he's late, late. And he sent me one and I, I jump here on my desk and then he shows up and he was six minutes late. And I said, oh, you're late, late. And he said, no, I'm early, late. And I had to put the screenshot on the TikTok video because I said, well, you said five minutes after. And he's like, no, I said 10 minutes after. And it was almost like a Wild West draw of our phones. And he said, I'm going to be a few minutes late. So we were both wrong. But if you would have put a polygraph on me and because of my previous experiences, I would have sworn testimony that it said five Mm -hmm. minutes late to the point where if I was a good narcissist, then I would have said, I don't know how you did this magic on your phone where you changed it, but it said five minutes, you know? You you still stick with it. Yeah, that's crazy. What, I know what I know, yeah. and I know what I remember. And so, you know, what happens with something that happens with neurodivergence is so what you just described is so let's talk about terms. Neurotypical, okay, yeah. Neurotypical is more if you think of your our bell curve. Mm-hmm. You know, we have our bell curve, and the averages are at the top of that curve, and then the the behaviors or whatever traits that are not as common are at the edges, and so. Okay. Um, so someone who is neurotypical is going to be more at the top or in that curve in terms of just numbers, average numbers of how we interact socially, okay. how our brain, our memory works, those types of things. But some of the traits at the edges, for example, memory, some neurodivergent people have what's an auditory, like an auditory version of photographic memory. So we, we've all heard of photographic memory. It's like yeah. you look at something it's like a snapshot goes in your brain and you can pull up an image and read yeah. it. A lot of neurodivergent folks, not everybody, but some have this auditory memory that's like a sound bite that is wow. locked in. So what you just described is how a neurotypical memory might work where we have an interaction, we have a conversation, and then it's filtered through that lens of bias, that lens yeah. of what we're expecting, what we think, what we already believe, those implicit memories. And then that in that becomes our meaning. That's yeah. that's the meaning we take away. This is all part of actually the communication program that I do. Okay. Uh, it becomes our meaning. Then you go back and have a conversation and that neurotypical person has an interpreted meaning which is maybe close but not quite. Mm-hmm. Like what you just described, it's you knew it, you both knew it was late. But- yeah. Which kind of late, you know, how how late? Yeah. Whereas a neurodivergent partner or friend or coworker may actually have a, like a, you talked about a screenshot. Yeah. You take a screenshot and so you know what's on the, what's written. A neurodivergent person may actually have a, an auditory wow. memo, voice memo in their file where they can literally replay the conversation and hear exactly what was said. And then that is the truth. I mean, that is. And, and that is their truth. Yeah. But then you filter, but then you add to it that their interpreted meaning is still going to be, they may know the exact words that were said, but the interpretation of the words. Still through there, have, what that means to them. So I, so I give yeah. an example often of somebody, I remember a couple that the husband would get really upset when the wife said, you're abusing me. Um, Because she had really started to understand emotional abuse. And then Mm -hmm. we had this amazing aha moment where he had grown up 
with physical abuse. So when she would say, that was his abuse me. Yeah. Then he's like, mm-hmm. I can't even have you express that. Cause I don't, you mm-hmm. know? And so, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying there. Cause even if the memory can even be challenged or if it's locked in, but there's still the interpretation of what the words mean or the context or. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually had that happen to me. So I was in a, a dating man for a couple of years after my divorce. That was also, he had autistic Asperger's. I recognized it. He wasn't so on board, so I didn't push it. But I remember one time he told me I was verbally abusive and I was just, I was mortified because I'm like, what? You know, as a a trained therapist and someone who works with relationships, I I know what my definition of abuse is and and verbal abuse. And I was just floored. But what it came down to when we we started unpackaging that is that loud animated voices were very startling from a sensory perspective. So sensory wise, neurodivergent individuals oftentimes are very overwhelmed by certain sensations. They can be underwhelmed as well Mm. um, and not detect a sensation enough. But something like a loud voice can be painful and like it can set off that, you know, or, you know, when when a fire alarm goes off right beside me, I'm going to jump and be like, So my loud voice to him was like that. That's what he would have experienced it. So as you can probably tell just in talking to me, I'm very animated. Yeah. So even if it's uh, excitement and expressive, it can feel overwhelming and overstimulated. Yes. And and he even said that, I I remember one day I was, so if it was a disagreement, that's when he felt it, it was verbal abuse. And I'm going through my lens of I'm not calling you names. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to gaslight, you know, all all the things that, you know, I think of as, as abuse. I'm just disagreeing with you and I'm doing it in an animated way. Yeah. But one day I was describing something that happened at work and I was really excited about it. And he literally said, you're scaring me. And I'm like, so yeah, it's just that lens of how we interpret is so huge and how we, the, what we take away. But I think what's interesting and I love about that too. I don't want to, I, my ADHD works in jokes only. So I want you to know I'm filtering a lot of them. I mean, right there, I want to say, okay. And of course you didn't, you, at that point you said, let me show you a loud voice. Cause then he learns, right. Oh, that, that's yeah, a very, so, very hey, I'm, I'm good with humor is a good thing. <laughs> good. But I, I do find it. So I feel like my hope for people is to be able to self-confront. So if somebody is saying that you are scaring me, that was that is there an opportunity there to check in and say, okay, I mean, I'll, I'm willing to take that data in, but then have that healthy ego to say, I'm, I, I know I'm not. So how do I, how do I express oh, that or show I'm up? I'm so glad right? you said that. It's the check-in, yeah. the check-in, the ability to check in, I think is one of the things that really differentiates someone okay. who is narcissistic okay. and someone who is not. Okay. That talk about that. Capacity, yeah. The capacity to check in. And <clears throat> this is where neurodivergence and narcissism can have some really complicated overlapping because that ability to check in is, is something that I refer to as theory of mind. Is okay. that a term that you've heard? No, I don't. So tell me it's, about it and I'll, and I may confabulate it and take it for myself someday. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> um, it's also, it can also be re- referred to as cognitive empathy, but okay. it, what it really refers to is the ability to recognize that my mind, my thoughts, my perceptions, my experience are actually mine and they are different from someone else's. I love that. And theory so, of mind. Is that what you call yes, it? Theory yeah, of mind. Will, it's I like will. a theoretical understanding that my mind is one mind. Okay. And so I oftentimes use an analogy when I'm, I'm explaining this to my client of a mountain. And I'll say, okay, let's say you and your partner are standing on opposite sides of a mountain. And this partner is seeing lush green waterfalls. And this partner on the other side is seeing rocky and barren. And then when I ask you to describe the mountain, you're going to give me totally different descriptions. But who's right? And I've had so many of my neurodivergent clients have this light bulb go off. And they're like, oh, because to them, their partner has been wrong on all these things. And it's like, okay, your partner's not wrong, but your partner has a different perspective. Now, now then you take that, some of my neurodivergent folks are able to go, okay, I can recognize this and I can, I can check, I can realize it was, it's like a light bulb. I can realize that I need to check in with me to really ask myself, what is it that I'm perceiving and why, and, and do that self. Self-confrontation or yeah. 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 Whereas some of them struggle with that. Some of them, yeah. and, and sometimes it's topic specific or it's person specific. And we all that way. Sometimes we're a lot better at it 
in one setting than we are in another. But the narcissist yeah. absolutely can't. Exactly. It's funny when you were just saying that, I was about to say, oh, I have to bring up though, but actually the narcissist can't, but you were, that's exactly where you're going. Because I do find that when I started noticing the similarities, because I, I would notice that some of my, because I work so much in that population of emotional immaturity and narcissism, but then the <laughs> man, the, the autistic person, there's always just a little bit of, but they were willing to confront here, or they were willing to sit with this discomfort here or go on a journey here, mm-hmm. but then it still just didn't feel Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so with neurodivergence, there's oftentimes disbelief and, you know, know, is that possible? But intrigue, because they also know that this has been a theme in their lives and they're not, they don't love the fact that they're constantly struggling with other people and with these interactions. And so usually my neurodivergent folks are intrigued. They may really struggle with implementing the changes. And so that's where we, you know, really, we really have to coach them through ha- growing up that basically exercising that muscle of the brain mm-hmm. it's teaching you how to stop and reflect how to stop and self-reflect how to recognize how to remember that your partner's perspective is different but some struggle with it a lot more than others but there's still that intrigue and that interest i like the word intrigue and jody i, I talk so often about we we don't like to sit with discomfort and what do we do with that discomfort and i feel like the narcissist just immediately sheds it. Do you feel like the, the the neurodivergent persons is equipped to sit with that discomfort or what's that like for them? It really depends on the individual and okay. it depends on the situation. Okay. And this is where the partnership dynamics really come into play because I see so, I mean, just all the time, the pattern is that neurodivergent individuals pair up with codependent, just like narcissistic. Yeah, you know, okay. Narcissist, co- pair, it's like wow. a Real common pairing. Human magnet syndrome. I don't know if you are familiar with that concept from Ross Rosenberg, but I love that human magnet. And they say it's breakup resistant in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And so my codependent neurotypical partners have come from their own abusive backgrounds, which has made them. So they're just inherently, they're hardwired to defer and take care and meet the needs of others and put themselves last. And then but what that, as you know, that results in eventually resentment and yeah. anger and bitterness and pain and hurt. And so depending on the nature of the relationship, I tell people, do you, do you have some people, some couples have the boxing gloves on and they're in the boxing ring, yeah. whereas others are still in a stage of we love each other, we care, and we want to figure this out. And it's harder when couples are in that boxing ring and there's that contempt and antagonism. Yeah. It's harder for the neurodivergent partner to, to pause and self-reflect because it's really vulnerable because when you, and it's harder for both partners Yeah, because when you pause and say, okay, let me look at what I'm doing here. Then you're opening yourself up for the other person to go. Yeah, you sure are. (laughs) And what can that, that overwhelming feeling be even bigger than for that neurodivergent person? Okay. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Because the skills to well to emotionally regulate. Yeah. You were talking about emotional immaturity. Yeah. So many neurodivergent folks are still very stuck in like the middle school immaturity okay. level, which is another reason why they can that middle school those middle school years. That's the narcissistic years. You know, yes. that's the years that all the middle schools are a little narcissist. All the middle they schools, all are. yes, they are. And then some go ahead and mature and pull out of that. But a lot of my neurodivergent folks, because they had so much difficulty with social and relational interactions that they got stuck there. Okay. And so having that ability to emotionally regulate, like you were saying, is it overwhelming to them? Yes. Mm. Because you think about what, an, what a middle schooler does. My son's 17. So thank goodness we've, <laughs> we've pulled out of it. Yeah. But, you know, in his 14, 13, 14 year old days. Oh my goodness. You know, he, when he needed to reflect on his behavior or something that he, he said or done, it, he just became this little bully that yeah. couldn't handle it. And that's what I see oftentimes in the neurodivergence. But the thing is, is they can learn how okay, it's, that's it's the key. It's another right? muscle that can be exercised. So it's yeah. funny because I talk, I call it the let's go ride bikes. And I talk about the emotionally mature. They can yell and scream and curse you out. And that does alleviate their discomfort, but then they feel better. So then five minutes later, do you want to go ride bikes? And for the adults, it's where, what do you want to go to eat? And so I like what you're saying, because I feel like it sounds like that can be a similar thing with the neurodivergent and the narcissist, but you're Very. saying though, the neurodivergent can learn where the narcissist is like, well, no, but they did. They said all these things. So what was I supposed to do? 
And now, yes, now they yes. can't go to dinner with me. Like I'm, we're, how, why can't they get over yes. it? So what as a matter of fact, yeah. Yeah, yeah. what you just described is something that's really crazy making for neurotypical partners of neurodivergence, because they will, like you said, they'll get yeah. that energy out. They'll expel it. And they feel better. Sometimes they'll withdraw for uh-huh. a little while. It's, it's either outward or and they'll withdraw. But then, like you said, it's in, in the world that I'm, the client world that I work in, it's called a, like a reset. They come back and it's like nothing ever happened. Yeah, and they're fine. Yeah. And then the, the neurotypical partners left like, I'm still, I'm yeah. still reeling over this interaction we just had. I'm still. Hey, you I just called me a whatever word. I mean, I can't, that I can't undo that. Right? I can't just yeah. move on from that. Yeah. yeah you, you call me names. You mischaracterized me. I can't just, but then the neurodivergent oftentimes is like, well, it's in the past. Yep. <laughs> Let's just move on. It's in the past. And neurotypical partners are like, I, I can't do that. That's that emotional immaturity. But the, again, the difference between the narcissist and the neurodivergent is when it's pointed out to the neurodivergent, there can be resistance. But especially when it's it's if it's somebody like me or somebody that's not the partner that they're also feeling kind of vulnerable to, there's that a willingness to go, okay, I okay, I can see that. Whereas, you know, with the narcissist, that ego is so fragile, yes. there's just no way that they're able to do that. And as a matter of fact, one of the patterns that I see the most, and I've had it happen twice this week with clients, because so many people come to me trying to figure out, is this neurodivergence? Is this narcissism? I and bet. sometimes it's both. And that's a really bad combination. But okay, uh, the pattern that I see, and you, I know you've seen it if you worked with narcissists, is they'll come in for help you know, with, with therapy, I do coaching now, they'll come in for help, but it's always about their partner. Oh, and it's I say always this all about the time fixing their partner. Is, yeah. I feel so yeah. validated right now because yeah, oh, right. Yeah. The, the pathologically kind person comes in and like, what can I do? No, it's me. It's my fault. I'm the narcissist. <laughs> and then the other person's like, I, I, yeah, let me tell you what she did today. Like then you'll, you can help. And, her, and right? the, the, yeah, the covert narcissist, which are much less, the much less outwardly grandiose and kind of the mm-hmm. in-your-face bullies. They are nice guys. You you talk, have a, a podcast about Mr. Nice Guy, yeah. which is a, a lot of my neurodivergence are those nice guys. But every time it's about how I'm being victimized by this relationship. Yes. And it's so when I go to challenge them and I, and I have a, a there was a family I've been working a couple and that I've been working with for a while. And I've been trying to really figure out because those are the hardest ones to figure out if it's it's if there is neurodivergence there and there is with this man, he's absolutely on the spectrum. But I, I kept thinking I was seeing some covert narcissism, too. Yeah. And so just this week, I really challenged him and said, look, I know every time we talk, you're telling me how overwhelmed you are. And yes, a lot of that is autism. But there are things you're bringing to this too. And we need to look at what you're bringing to it because that's where your power empowerment is. That, yeah. That's when you look at you, you can only look at you. Absolutely. He sent me a text the next day canceling. Oh, he he said, I'm not going to, I've decided not to work with you anymore. Yeah. Been working with this couple for a year. And I, I honestly, it made me sad, but I wasn't surprised because right, absolutely. It's, it's the pattern. And, it, yeah, and it really I told is. his wife, I said, okay. I, and I'd been talking to her about what I, I thought this might be the case. And I said, well, I've got some clarity now because yeah. that's, I would say 95% of the time, that's the pattern. The other pattern is either I become the enemy then and I they go on attack, the attack with me or there's just still the consistent, they may still think they can use me in yeah, some absolutely. way. Yeah. To get to their partner. Well, Jody, can I ask you too? And I feel bad because I started this like, tell me about your journey. And now we went oh. in a completely <laughs> different direction, but it is guaranteeing that you'll have to come back on again. I'm so enjoying <laughs> um, it. So, right. So when, when you do have that, how do you coach that? Cause I like what you're saying is that the person will have that willingness to self confront. And that's mm-hmm. where I, you know, yeah, that's where I get my data is that that whole go ride bikes theory is that the narcissist wants to get rid of that discomfort. And if you can get them to appear to self-confront, you know, I call that one the, okay, I'll never do it again until I do it again. Because it's like in that moment, it feel they do, they, they are like, okay, yeah, it does feel good. I get the validation from saying I'll never do it again. And I get it. But then I think everybody in the room sees that, that narcissistic apology of like, okay, fine. You're okay. Maybe I did do that. But, mm-hmm. you know, but quite frankly, you made me and then, but I won't do it again. 
so then it, I, it almost breaks my heart because I, I realize so much of the world I'm working in is wreck it. What you said, like I'm getting more clarity and I put all this content out there. And then the more pathologically kind person is starting to see the patterns. They feel heard and seen, but it's almost like this rule out. So, of, okay, I need to stop putting my myself out there because in the world of narcissism, then it just gets used against me and I'm handing them weapons to use against me. You know, what, how do you coach through that, that awareness? Do you have the pathologically kind person continue to show up and be vulnerable? Or you, do you start working more with that neurodivergent person and really trying to get them to self-confront? So if I recognize narcissism and I'm, I'm confident it's narcissism, I absolutely do not continue to work with the partner to be vulnerable. Yeah, um, I think that that would be doing them harm. So yeah. I start what I if I know there's narcissism, I don't ever tell anybody to leave a, a relationship because it's yeah. such a complicated decision. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I start working with them to recognize to, to figure out wh- how they're going to set boundaries, how they're yeah. going to do it safely. And I just I become a, a reflection. I, I tell them this is what I'm seeing. This is what's there. This is how it's going to be. And I start working on that element of hope because so many of that, so many of those partners are still hoping. And I start working on that with them and say, look, we need to put hope away and we need to look at what is. And this is what is. And you choosing, you have a choice to be in this relationship, in this marriage. You have that choice, but you need to really know what you're choosing. And, And this is, so that's where I start working with them. When there is not narcissism, yeah, okay. or maybe there there's some emotional immaturity that really feels like narcissism, and it can there can it can involve gaslighting. Mm-hmm. I start working with both of them, and one of the things I do with the neurotypical partner is working on the codependency and mm-hmm. and to stop taking care of the other need the other's needs at their own expense, to start setting boundaries, to learn what that means and what that looks like, and that, so I work with them jointly. One one. I, we start working on self-awareness. We start working on emotional regulation, the neurodivergent partner and the other partner. I actually have, I've had several neurotypical partners say to me, I had no idea how much work I was going to have to do here because they come in really recognizing, well, both partners recognize that the part are the ones, the problem, Yeah, but they do the neurotypical partner, the codependent one really does see a lot of the dysfunction in their neurodivergent or narcissistic partner. But it's not victim blaming. I don't victim blame them and say, well, you know, you did this to yourself. But right. but I start working with them to see how their own, what they've brought with them is contributing to the problem. And, and I want to just speak to, we talked about implicit memories. Yeah. I actually have in, in my communication model, I, I walk them through four stages of an interaction. And in the first stage is what's in your backpack. And so I have this analogy of the backpack that is it's strapped to our back and we we wear it throughout life and everything in there is what makes us who we are. So mm-hmm. it's all of those implicit memories, the experiences that we've had, the situations, the environments, the family we grew up with. But it's also so it's so those have formed our beliefs and our values and our goals and our fears. All that's in there. But it's also our DNA and our genetics and yeah. everything that's in there, our hopes, our dreams. So I teach people to check in with themselves and to start looking in your backpack. What was in there in that conversation? You know, Mm -hmm. that conversation that went south, what did you each have in your backpack? And sometimes that's even your neurology, you know, the way your brain's wired, your emotional maturity, all of that. And so I work with them both on self-awareness to a really long answer to your question. No, it's a good answer too, because I like where you went with that. Cause I, and I think maybe even what I was looking for is a unicorn because I want the answer of if it's a, if it is narcissism, I'm not, I know the narcissism one, like then I'm really working with that awareness P the, the mm-hmm. pathologically kind, but if it is autism and then we're kind of saying, okay, then they're willing to do the work. What does that look like for you? I mean, is it still kind of what you're talking about here or I think that's why I realized I maybe I'm asking a, a question that is just, I think I'm wanting the, oh, it's really easy. You just, uh, oh, no. one thing, right? Because <laughs> I yeah. I, that's no. where I know I don't know enough about the neurodivergent. And so there, yeah. I think I am looking, but it's so funny. I'm probably like what your clients are. Well, just tell me the thing that I can say to them once I realize they're neurodivergent <laughs> that then makes it all better. Right. right? Yeah. So it, no, it's not easy. It's literally a, it's a reinvention of the couple, but it it involves completely coming. There's an educational com- component mm-hmm. to it. 
it involves a, an awareness of who I am and who I am relative to you. So in these relationships, most people have been interacting and relating to their partner based on that projection of who, okay, of their that makes own, sense. of their own, uh, what they want in a partner, what who they believe their partner is, and what they even want from a relationship. So we start, we really, we back it up and go, okay, who are you? Who mm-hmm. am I? Because I and I tell them you can't choose to stay in this relationship or leave it until you know what you're choosing. Yeah. And so you have to know yourself first. So we start there. And so for a lot of adults, especially, neurodivergence is a new thing. That's something okay, that makes sense. The most adults over the age of 40 were never diagnosed as a child. And so all this, you know, you talk about the being out there, putting your podcasts out there. The information is important because the therapists are not trained in this. There's There aren't people out there, professionals, who really know how to help. So we start with the education piece and with a, a an acceptance that you're not wrong for being who you are. I'm not wrong for being who I am, but this is really who we are. And I actually do a, a comp. I do this relationship evaluation for some, some couples who want to do it, uh-huh. where I put the I do testing on both of them. It's the coolest thing, actually. We when we think about neurodiversity assessment, we think somebody goes gets tested for autism. Yes. I test them both, and we look at neurodivergence and oh, executive like dysfunction and emotional intelligence and conflict styles, and then we look at the data side by side to see, well, this is who you are, and this is who I am. And when they look and they see how different they are from each other, it's like, mm-hmm. it, it's like, you know, the love languages quizzes. Sure. And it's so helpful. To well, see so does that, that one, because I do feel like, and real quick before I forget this train of thought, are you familiar with the Welcome to Holland poem about growing up with us? Okay, this is, I did an episode early on in the Narcissism podcast, and it's about having a special needs child. And somebody says that you're getting on a plane and you, your whole life, you dreamt of going, I think, like to Hawaii, and you've got your beach clothes, <laughs> and then you get off and you're in Holland, and there's windmills and wooden shoes, and you didn't pack for Holland. And so mm-hmm. I talked about that almost in this concept of, you know, you always thought this would be your relationship that it would be in Maui. But then I did that episode just to kind of say, hey, you're in Holland. But I feel like almost, you know, with the neurodivergent is, or with narcissism, somebody saying, well, I still want, I still want Maui. So I think I'm going to, I'm going to exit. And so is the neurodivergent and neurotypical relationship is almost like trying to get to that acceptance of, well, we're in Holland. We're in Holland. Get the wooden shoes. And yeah. Yeah. Because a lot of people are still wearing their, their Their beach clothes and their shorts and going, it's so cold here. And you're like, yeah, it is. And really being upset because it's so cold. And it's like, yeah, (laughs) if you want to stay in Holland, it's going to be cold, you know, but there's also beautiful mountains and snow. there's some beauty here too. And I think that's the other thing that for my my neurodiverse couples, where somebody's neurodivergent, somebody's not, and sometimes they both have neurodivergences. Okay, I see a lot of ADHD paired with autism. Oh, and, and yeah, before, and I know we're going to run out of time, but well, maybe that's another one for another day too. But I, I'm very open about my ADD, and so I've been told, well, you know, they're putting it on the autism spectrum, as if I'm going to go, what? And it's like, of course, it makes sense when you talk about it from a, it's what neurodivergent is, and so I love mm-hmm. that we're down demystifying that because it, it's. Yeah. It's, it is a brain it's, thing. it's part of those brain differences. I will tell you yeah, that yeah. something that's made me go, I'm not sure how I feel about that, is a lo- some people are also putting personality disorders like narcissism on a- okay. and labeling it as neurodivergent. And I'm like, I, how dare they? Nope. I, I can't. That one. And, and, and I guess I get it. I, yeah. Literal sense. Right. It is a brain difference. But for me, I guess it's more of a developmental difference. Yeah. Because something happened along the way in developmentally as the personality developed and the ability to interact and engage, something happened along the way. And we do know with narcissism, there's a genetic component too. Same with neurodivergence. You know, we've always said, or I not always, but there's a, a thing that genetics load the gun, environment pulls the trigger. So yeah. it's, and I think it's similar with narcissism. So in, in that very literal sense, I guess, Something like narcissism is a neurodivergence, but I still really have a hard time. Um, I, I, and I'm I not sure too. I'm ever going to be able. <laughs> no, and, and it's interesting because there's, and so I have this amazing private women's Facebook group for women that are in emotionally immature relationships with fill in the blank. Could be their spouse, their parent, their adult child, their religious institution, their boss, you name it. Mm-hmm. And so there's, people will bring up that ADHD and narcissism 
concept. And I completely can understand as, because I started the whole thing, waking up to narcissism was very intentional of waking up to my own narcissistic traits and tendencies or the narcissism in your relationship. And that's where I, I made this intentional move to to call it emotional immaturity pretty early on, because that's more palatable. But mm-hmm. I do feel like you can see that ADHD is that talk about not wanting to sit with discomfort and being very impulsive and then dopamine driven that, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. I, it lends itself to things like gaslighting. And I, you know, yeah. 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 And I think the, you said it makes it more powerful. And I, I think that is important in the work that we do because some, so many words are just like, Oh, I can't, mm-hmm. I can't handle that word. Something that is a common thread. I think that's an important thing to pay attention to is capacity. And Ooh, so, talk about that. Okay. so basically I, I say that the three pillars of what's required to make a relationship work is capacity, willingness, and motivation mm. on each partner's part. You know, willingness and motivation are, are so, somewhat different. They sound similar, but you can be willing, but not quite motivated. And I, I always use the analogy of New Year's Eve and gym memberships. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of people who are willing to go to the gym, but... Yeah, it's not motivated. Yeah, they're not yeah, motivated. But then capacity is huge. And you some in in that regard... Some neurodivergent folks quite literally don't have the capacity mm-hmm. for whatever okay. reasons. And narcissists, we know, don't have the capacity. Yeah. So with neurodivergence, sometimes it just depends on neurologically how locked in are they to that inability with theory of Mike and how impossible, you know, can they grow that muscle? Right. Some can't. And so we have to look at that. And so I would say that's a common thread that is, I can actually swallow that. I can stomach that Okay. Um, in yeah. terms of narcissistic and narcissistic narcissism and neurodivergence having similarities, because when we look at some just don't have the capacity, which they don't, and that's a very important thing to look at is the capacity there with narcissists. I, I've just never seen it. Yeah. And with neurodivergence, it really depends on the individual and that's... everything else that's in their backpack. Well, and it's so powerful too. I do some work with the Amen Clinic and they do the brain scans and I had someone recently get one and they they identified an area of, it's like, I don't know, behind one of the back of the brain where that they were saying that should have not been getting as much blood now as an adult. And then another area that's related to empathy that wasn't getting much blood flow at all. And so you look at that and it's like literally a brain thing, but then here's a person that that they do have the willingness and the motivation. And so then that's, you know, so now they want to so learn. Can we teach the brain? Right, right. And that's and, the, yeah. You know, you're, you're really talking my language now because before, in, in very, very early in my career, I specialized in cognitive rehab with people who had brain injuries. Oh, interesting. And so acquired and traumatic brain injury. So I saw personality changes and all sorts of limitations from a brain injury, but I also saw how the brain had the ability to, I used to use the analogy of a bridge being washed out after a hurricane. We were, you know, and then it takes a little time. We may not rebuild that bridge, but we can build another route. And that's what happens. That's what happens with brain injuries. And that's why we really understand concussion protocol now is is that we've got to really power down and let the brain recover and heal. So that capacity, when you look at something that's more neurodevelopmental and you've got an area of the brain that's underdeveloped, is the capacity there for some people to teach, you know, to rewire the brain, get the brain to, to learn and grow. And, but then you add the layer of willingness and motivation. Well, that's huge. I, I like that a lot because that's where I now, you know, I hate to be through a party pooper on it, but then the more you learn about confabulation is if what it feels like to be them or their implicit memory based off of their residue of lived experience of it can't be them because they never saw it modeled. They don't so want to motivated. sit with any discomfort. Yeah. And not even only not motivated, but it, it, that confabulation happens in real time. So then if you're even trying to get somebody to say, look, here's the brain scan and you can do this. They're like, it's not even a problem, you know? Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. So the motivation's not there. And yeah. that would be a key difference between neurodivergence and narcissism because the neurodivergent individual is very aware okay. that there have been problems. They're very aware they've been different okay. from a very young yes. age. They're very aware that something's different about themselves. Many say they feel like an alien in a human body. The whole Superman analogy resonates with people. And I look like a human being, but, and I even have some superpowers. And that's some of those, you know, things. But that awareness is there that there's something about me that's different that other people don't get or don't like. 
And so that depending on when they learn about their neurodivergence and everything else that's in their backpack, they are more likely to have that motivation to figure it out and to understand it where this probably should be a whole other episode, but where it gets really complicated is when you have a combination of neurodivergence and narcissism. And there are lots of different reasons why that happens. We're still learning about why that happens. I've actually seen clients who were neurodivergent who had a narcissistic parent and it's a learned. Absolutely. It was modeled, right? That's all they know that they, yeah, that's so wild. Yeah. And so is it true narcissism or is it just a script? Because my neurodivergent folks, their way of interacting is by scripting. They study people. They learn how to, in yeah. this situation, this, this, this. And we all do it, but it's vicarious for neurotypicals. It's kind of happening in the background. Mm-hmm. Whereas neurodivergent folks. Very active and intentional. It's very intentional. Okay. Yeah. And so when they realized, I had one guy realize that he had been very abusive in a narcissistic way. And he was absolutely devastated when he realized how much harm he had done his wife. But then he was motivated. Absolutely. And that, that, and it's interesting because as the therapist working with this population, you know, it's interesting because I work with so many people that are continually trying to show up and they're continually handing their heart to the narcissist who is then using it against them. But then I also get that person that just didn't. That's why I like to say didn't know what they didn't know. And yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable, but all of a sudden they get the tool and they just can't do enough with it. I mean, they want to just figure it out as quickly as they can, which is a whole thing in and of itself. So Jody, I yeah. feel bad. I say I have a client or I would talk for another oh, no. hour, right? <laughs> um, will you come, will you come back on? And we Absolutely. didn't even talk about your story. And I mean, I really, I feel validated as a therapist. I feel like I learned what neurodivergence is now. I feel like I'm going to have confirmation bias for the rest of the, the day. And <laughs> wait a minute, is this person, you know, that sort yeah, of thing. I'd, I would I'd love, love to come back, back. And don't ever hesitate to reach out to me too. If you need to consult anything, I'm happy okay. to. Yeah, because I'm really fascinated by the assessment you do with couples. And maybe we can talk about that too, because I think that would yeah. be really helpful. Okay. Yeah, definitely. What a joy. Hey, this was a pleasure. I look forward to talking with you again. This Very is, much. Uh, Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me, Tony.